Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Welcome to Past Imperfect. I'm Rachel Sylvester. And I'm Alice Thompson. And we're talking to people about the traumas in their childhoods and how they shaped their characters and careers. Our interviewee today won his first gold medal aged 13 at the European Championships. At 14, he was the youngest competitor in the finals of the Beijing Olympics. At 15, he became Britain's youngest world champion at an Olympic sport. But the Olympic gold, even in London, has eluded him. He is the diver Tom Daly. We've interviewed him several times over the years, but I think this is the first time that we have interviewed him with all his clothes on. So we're in Tom Daly's PR's office because Tom has been very careful about not getting the virus. Yes. As you would, uh, everyone is fairly nervous about getting it, but if you are an elite athlete, it's going to be a total nightmare if you're also training for the Olympics if you yes. get ill at any time. Exactly. Um, and we're all wearing masks so the sound may be a little bit more muffled than normal. Yeah we're all wearing masks and it's something that as an athlete uh, this virus can be quite although yes I'm young I'm healthy and it might not be a big um, problem for me. Um, I do have people in my family that are high risk and also uh, the more research that's coming out about the long-term effects post-recovery on athletes, like some people have reduced lung capacity, some people are not able to, or some neurological functions are um, hindered a little bit. So it's just making sure that we're taking every precaution, really. So, and is it the longest you spent out of a pool then since you yes, were seven? The longest time out of the water, but we've been training still. So getting back into the water wasn't as hard as it would be if I hadn't done anything. So has it been incredibly hard to keep fit during lockdown? You must have had to train at home and things like that. Yeah, exactly. Like everyone else, obviously the gyms are closed, pools are closed. So at home, luckily I've got a bike and a treadmill to be able to do, like in the initial stages of lockdown, I didn't want to go outside whatsoever just to be super safe. So I was inside. I also have a few weights that, that I have as well to be able to do some kind of training but obviously I can't do any somersaulting because I don't have crash mats and I can't do lots of the diving specific stuff because you need a bigger area than just your living room so that was something that was quite difficult but you kind of learn to adapt and I started doing things that I don't normally have time to do like I was able to do you know hour and a half long yoga classes and I was able to do pilates so it's like there's lots of things that I was able to do to help care for my body so that I can make the most of this 
break from the constant impact of the water. I started actually knitting because the last week of um, February, the first weekend in March, was we were in Canada for a diving competition. And I downloaded a YouTube video of how to knit <laughs> on the way out there. And I thought, while I'm on the plane, I'm going to learn how to knit. Absolutely terrible. I spent the whole six-hour flight trying to knit and I had nothing to show for it other than like a wonky, holy piece of fabric by the end of it. But once I got there, I realized there are so many divers that knit. So there was Australian divers, there was a Russian diver, there was a Chinese coach and they saw me trying to do it and they were like coming over and helping me. So So why? What's the association? So initially I started trying to do it for um, something to take my mind off of diving. There's Most of the time I'm always so in my head about diving that I get home from the pool and you know Robbie is a great distraction from the pool in itself but you know if it's Robbie or diving to be able to just switch off completely once Robbie's in bed I don't have to think about diving I don't have to worry too much about what's happening the next day with Robbie I can just be really mindful and present and it's almost like a form of meditation it was oh my gosh so many things I've made (laughs) hats ponchos jumpers scarves socks um, I've just finished a jumper. I'm about to start knitting bow ties. Like I've literally, I've done everything at this point. <laughs> and did you dream about diving when you were in lockdown or not? Did you have that sense of falling mm. through the air? Um, you know, it's funny you say that. I didn't dream about diving at all. I mean, there are certain things that we do. I was doing every single day, like visualization. Mm. So I stand on the end of the diving board. I close my eyes and I imagine myself doing each one of my dives so that it's it's kind of like trains my brain into thinking I'm doing the dives continuously so that when I'm get getting back into the pool and doing the dives again, my brain is already kind of on the wavelength of being able to do them. So I just shut my eyes and imagine being on the diving board, imagine what I'm feeling, what I'm seeing and what I'm seeing as I'm spinning around so that I'm able to just really hone in on those, those skills. That's fascinating. So is it terrifying? You're sta- I'd be utterly terrified standing 10 metres up on this slab of concrete knowing you're going to have to plunge towards the water. How do you feel when you're standing up there? I mean, it is terrifying. I've always been, I've always been terrified, actually, of diving off the boards. I remember when I first went up there when I was eight years old, nine years old, I literally crawled to the edge because I thought I was going to fall <laughs> over. That I was, that's, oh, really? was going to fall off on the sides. and It's just so terrifying. You, you know... You can walk in a straight line on the floor, no problem, without even thinking about it. But as soon as you take yourself 10 metres up, just railings on the side and like a big pool of water, you're thinking, oh, this is where I'm going to fall over if I'm going to fall over. So I've always kind of, I think you ask any diver, there's always that adrenaline rush. There's always that. And as soon as that adrenaline rush or that worry or that stress goes away, that is when things can go wrong because you're not sharp, you're not focused and you're not thinking about what you need to do. And what speed do you hit the water then? 35 miles an hour. So it's, it's quite an impact. And the mm-hmm. height of the 10 metres, two double-decker buses and half a car piled on top of each other. So have you got injuries everywhere or not? Oh, gosh, I've, uh, I've injured so many different parts in my body. Um, I mean, I started off uh, this year with an injured hand. I've, ha- I've torn my tricep like four times. I've had uh, stress fracture responses in my, both of my shins. I've had uh, disc bulges in my back. I've had problems with uh, shoulders, neck. You like? I mean, you know, I've hit my head on the board twice. <gasps> I mean, That's you know, yeah. yeah, I mean, you name so it. So why do you do it? 
<laughs> I know. It's a, like I ask myself that all the time. Um, I, you know, when you Is just it like love pushing something. Pushing yourself. Or? Yeah, I just, I just love it. Like there's, there's things that go wrong in anything and everything. There's always things that will go wrong. And there are always things that will be challenging. And I'm one of those people that if I set my mind on something, I will try to do my absolute best at it like knitting <laughs> I wanted to set my mind to be able to do something and I'll do it and the same with with diving like I want to you know I've dreamed of being the best in the world and I've won world championships twice but there's you know there's more that I want to achieve which is why I'm still going and I'm going to keep going until until my body says is that the Hold goal on. the Olympics I mean you know that's every athlete's dream um but for me this this whole um, pandemic has really given me a sense of perspective of I can only do my best and there are more you know lots of athletes will say that it's the most important thing in the whole world but I think lots of athletes during this time can actually learn to realize that life is so it just generally for family and friends is so important so for me my greatest achievement will be if I can arrive in Tokyo on that diving board the best physically prepared mentally prepared and with no regrets knowing that I've done everything in my power to give myself the best opportunity to perform well and then you know what just enjoy it because I can put so much pressure on myself and it was similar in 2016 I tried like I knew that what I wanted I knew that I could do it and I put so much pressure on myself that actually it took the enjoyment out of it and I go back to like Beijing 2008 when I was 14 I didn't know what I was doing I was just there because I loved it and I was enjoying it and it was so much fun um, and I kind of just want to get that feeling back because with that feeling you end up diving so much better anyway because you just are able to fly. to your childhood and you were seven I think when you first started yes. diving what were you like then and what was it that made you want to take up diving I mean my parents were always um, wanted me to learn how to swim because we lived in Plymouth so it's by the water so if we ever got into any trouble in the water we'd be able to swim so we loved being in the water and one weekend my dad uh, took me to and my brothers to a public swimming session in a pool that I'd never been to before at the time it was called Central Park I think it was and in the swimming lesson there was like the session that we were in there was also people diving in the club and I saw people like throwing themselves off the 10 meter doing somersaults and twists and thinking whoa that looks cool and then after that I was just like actually can I try that so then the next Saturday we went and it was a little taster session I loved it and then we went back the next week and the week after did my first competition got talent scouted and kind of all went from there. What did you most like about it? I loved being in the water and I loved swimming, but swimming for me got a little bit monotonous because I was going swimming up and down, staring at a black line. So then the, and I loved like water parks and things like that. So like the adrenaline side of all the slides and things like that. And it was kind of like the perfect hybrid of a sport version of a water park. Cause you got to <laughs> jump off of things. You got to learn how to do somersaults and the twists and the turns. And that for me was just something that I, it, I just took to it. And like the sense of community and the fact that it's quite a social sport because you're all like queuing up on the diving boards, everybody's having a chat and I got to meet so many great people. And I don't know, I feel like also sport teaches you so much discipline and teaches you so many valuable skills that you can use 
outside of the pool, uh, even if it's time management, goal setting, um, being committed, dedicated, all of those kinds of things um, have really helped me from being a diver, have really helped me through school and in everyday life. So can you remember your first dive, your first somersault? What was it like? I mean, I can remember the going into my first diving lesson and first of all, I had it was like a new pool for me. So I remember walking through the changing rooms, getting completely lost, not knowing where I needed to go. And the, every session on the gate, it always said pool closed because it was for like the lessons rather than just open for the public. And I remember standing by the pool closed sign just crying. So I was like, oh, it says it's closed. But then I could see the people in my group diving and I'm thinking, I can't go in there, it says closed. And I remember standing there for about 10 minutes crying. And that was kind of the story of my early diving years. I was terrified of everything. I would stand on the end of the board and cry. I would uh, like really? be so scared to do absolutely everything. Did you do any belly flops? So many. And I think that's partly why it caused all of the being scared. You know, that when you hit your head when you were younger? I actually hit my head at a swimming lesson. And it was just at the end, they give you, oh, you've got five minutes to go do what you want. And I hit my, hit my head doing that, which is silly. But I had already been diving at that point. But it was just one of those things that lots of things were happening. And I hit my head and then I was scared to go back. And then I would belly flop and then I'd be scared to do it. And it got to a point where... I was so scared of everything that I just got to a point where I was like, you know what, just going to do it. And, and soon you were doing it four times a day, really, because you had two hours in the morning and two hours in the afternoon. And Yeah, exactly. I mean, it started off literally once a week, and then it was like, you've been talent scouted, and now you go into the club squad where I got to dive on Tuesdays and Thursdays, and then you get moved up again, and then it was Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and then... Obviously, I was at school and then went to the elite group, and then I was able to train Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, but then also on Monday and Friday early mornings before school. So how many hours a week were you doing? Oh, gosh. I mean, initially, it started at about 18 hours, and then it went to 20, and then it went to 24. Um, and now it's, it's around, it's, it ranges, really, but between 24 and 28 hours a week, depending on my... It's more probably, this next year is probably going to be more around 24 hours, because... I'm getting on. <laughs> I'm getting on to the older side of the diving uh, team now. In fact, I am the oldest currently. Um, so that fact alone means that I have to train really smart to look after my body. And did you feel you had to sacrifice quite a lot when you were a child then to do all that training? At the time, it never seemed like a sacrifice because I loved it so much. Like it, it, I didn't even have to think twice if someone said, do you want to go to, like one of my friends was like, let's go to the cinema. And I'm like, no, I've got, I'm going training. Because that for me was my cinema. That for me was my going to the park. That was my fun. That was my like creative outlet, but it was also a sporting outlet. There were so many things that it was so exciting for. And to be honest, yes, looking back on it, like I could have been, you know, going to parties and I could have been doing all that kind of stuff. But the sacrificing those little things but the amount that I've got to travel the people I've gotten to meet the opportunities that I've had like it's been uh, so it's just been something that I've always been very driven in that sense and you qualified for the Olympics when you were 13 yeah. it's incredible did you feel a huge sense of pressure at that age I had no idea what I was what <laughs> I was doing it was just like I knew that I was going from you know pool to pool competing in loads of different places against some amazing some of my idols and I knew it was actually the year before in 2007 my coach Andy Banks at the time said to me do you want to go to the Olympic Games next year and I was like well yeah of course I do he's like I've written a plan that 
can get you to the Olympic Games. If you learn these dives at this time and you have this experience in these competitions, I think I can get you to the Olympic Games. And I was like, okay, like, sure, why not? Because you had people asking for your autograph and things when you were very young, didn't you? That must have been, I mean, in some ways amazing, but in other ways quite difficult for you as a school child and quite difficult with you with your friends. Absolutely. I mean, it was, it's funny because, I mean, I qualified, I think I was year eight when I went to the Olympics. <laughs> so it was, I think it was year eight or year nine. Year nine? Might have been year nine. I don't know. It was, it was young. <laughs> and I remember it wasn't when I was... Like, in the build-up to the Olympics, no one at school really cared. It was kind of like, oh, cool, yeah, whatever. It was when I got back from the Olympics, and... You were a superstar. Yeah, it, 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 my life had completely changed. And I remember coming back to school, and it started off with, like, little, like, you know, names and things like that. And I was like, yeah, whatever. Like, I don't, I don't care, I don't care. And then, it, like, after a while, things like that really grind on you mm. and then it started things throwing and then it was like pushing and it, got, it kind of like gradually got worse and worse and worse to a point where I was like I don't want to go to school anymore and I was one of those people that bottled it up didn't want to say anything to anyone didn't and you know I think lots of people feel that way they feel like they can't talk to anyone and they feel like it's the most difficult thing in the world when actually if I could go back being just being able to reach out to someone and I know that in schools now there are more um, more avenues that you can go down to speak to certain people within your school whether it be a teacher whether it be a friend a parent or like someone that you can trust that you can go to talk to because without talking to someone it's really hard for it to get better if people don't know how it's affecting you it can be really really tough do you think that bullies were just jealous really i mean i i, I don't know i think it's you know it shouldn't be just a thing and shouldn't be just accepted that that's just what happens at school. But it's, I mean, I don't know. It's, I'd like to think that it wouldn't happen in schools anymore. Like I feel like people, I would like to think that people would celebrate people's successes rather than try and drag them down. Um, but it was, it, I just remember it being a really tough time. It affected my diving. My diving started going really badly. I was miserable at home. I was miserable at school. And it was just getting worse and worse and worse until I was like, you know what, I can't do this anymore. I ended up moving schools. And, you know, that move of schools and realising, you know, how people can be treated and how much of a difference that makes you feel at school and how much better you can do because of that... I mean, then that went into 2009 where I ended up winning my first world championship. So from my diving being at its worst to just changing that mindset and then boosting myself back up, it was a, it's really highlights the importance of talking about it and just mental health as well in general, because people who are bullied can really suffer in silence quite a lot of the time and being able to speak about it and be open about mental health can really help elevate what you do and you ended up doing brilliantly didn't you then in your GCSEs and you didn't you get someone to do your photography GCSE with you who was quite well known Uh, yes (laughs) well I had lots of different sections to it you basically you have a coursework piece where you do lots of photos and then you have an exam piece which is six weeks long you get given your task and you're then you can either use the photos that you've taken throughout the year or you can go out and take specific photos for this um, this project and I was doing a photo shoot randomly for Italian Vogue with um, Bruce Weber, who is an incredible photographer <laughs> anyway, um, and Kate Moss was the person that was with me doing the photo shoot. Um, and at the end of it, I was just like, do you mind if I take some photos? 
for my GCSE photography. <laughs> and I brought my like little like terrible camera along with me and like was trying to take photos. So and did then, she pose brilliantly? Yeah, she posed for them and she was no, she was great. And even like when I was taking them, Bruce Weber came over and was like, Oh, why don't you try this? And I was like, okay, <laughs> oh, okay. fantastic. Did you I, get an A star? 100%. <laughs> there must have been fantastic in many ways but for your family and your brothers it must have been quite difficult because your parents must have spent a lot of time oh, taking you to competitions and looking after you was yeah. that a strain on the whole family I mean it was something that kind of became normal my family was so supportive of me whether it was my grandparents my mum my dad but my dad in particular was like my biggest cheerleader he was so you know it was like, it, it was just, you didn't have to say anything. We were just so in line with how we both had this dream of going to an Olympic Games or winning an Olympic medal. And um, he traveled, you know, around the country, around the world to be there with his, you know, big flag that he would wave oh, yes. in the crowd. And, you know, that he was always my biggest cheerleader. But then when you were 12, your dad got very sick, didn't he? Yes. He was diagnosed with a brain tumour. How did you find out about that? Did your parents tell you straight away or did they try to protect you? I mean, looking back on it now, I can kind of see, I see it differently of how they uh, went around it. But I remember going to a competition in 2006 when I was... Um, started learning my really difficult dives but then when we got home my dad said oh by the way oh all the uh, lads down the pub we're shaving our heads for charity and I was like okay all right because that was just something that he would do because he was a bit of a joker so he came home with a shaved head one day and I was like okay you know whatever and then he didn't come home the next night and I was like mum was like where's I was like where's dad to my mum Anyway, she took us to the hospital. I was oh, just going for a checkup, no worries. Anyway, we go in to like the recovery room and he's there with like these bandages around his head and he's just had a brain tumor the size of a grapefruit removed oh from his head. Oh my goodness. So I didn't know what that at the time, but I looked at him and I was like, I was old enough to know like that's not normal. 12 year old, you're like, okay, you've just been in and had surgery on your head or else why would you have a bandage around your head? what's been going on. He's been having these, what we thought were panic attacks, like 10 panic attacks a day for the last 12 months. That, so maybe these weren't panic attacks and maybe they were seizures and all of this kind of things that were going through my head. So, and then, you know, he started recovering and he was doing well on radiotherapy and chemotherapy and he started doing really great again. Um, and then he got, uh, a couple of years later, he got another type of cancer uh, in a different part of his brain um, and then had chemotherapy and that went into, you know, was going away. And then there was, I remember it very clearly, I, my team manager in 2011 brought me into her room and said, Tom, I need to speak to you. And was just like, Tom, uh, I would like you to go and pack your bags and get ready to go home. We have a flight booked for you tonight. Your dad's not doing very well. He's taken a turn. You need to go home. Where like, were you at the time? I was in Mexico. Oh, God. So I was in Mexico. We'd been training there for two weeks, and then I was going to Fort Lauderdale for a competition, and it was two days before you're leaving for the competition. And she was just like, yep, your dad's not doing very well. We need you to go home. So I remember going home, 
at the beginning of May and, you know, just walking in and seeing my dad laying there in the living room on a hospital bed, uh, like not being able to speak. And I was just like, wait, like before I left, he was running around, walking around, you know, just doing like normal. He wasn't able to drive, but he was normal. Um, and I remember going in and seeing that and thinking, what, oh, like, what, what happened? How, how is this happening? Why is this happening? Why is this happening to you? Why is this happening to me? What's, you know, what's going to happen? And what did he say to you? He didn't say anything. He just lifted his arm in the air, like cheering. He would do this thing when he'd see me where he'd like cheer. And so what had happened? So he had got a, so another tumor had come again. And this time it kind of caught everyone off guard. And it was one of those ones where, um, by the time they'd found it, it was far too late. And they basically had just said, you've got 48 hours. So another tumour had come again and by the time they'd found it, it was far too late and they basically had just said, you've got 48 hours. Oh my God. But... How did you feel? I mean, obviously it was horrifying. Like, I was scared. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to say. I didn't know, you know, if I should go to training, if I should stay at home. And of course I went to training because that was my way to escape and I didn't know what to do, what to think, how to feel. Because um, he communicated at all? At that time, no. Um, but funnily enough, um, after 48 hours, he started to make a recovery. He was able to speak, he was sitting up, he was getting out of bed, walking, and we were like, okay, this is great. And they were like, all the doctors were like, yeah, this never happens, like mm-hmm. normally that. So then he started talking about, have we got our t- London 2012 tickets yet? And started talking oh, about the oh. next year and oh, like, have you got tickets for Synchro? Have you got tickets for Individual? Like, when are you going to training? When, like, you know, it was just having normal conversations. Mm-hmm. I was also studying for the theory exam for driving test as well. <laughs> All of these things were happening. Um, so, but it was, of course, he, he lived for another three weeks after the time I got home. Uh, and it was, yeah, I mean, it was horrible. Uh, but when you know it's coming, you can kind of prepare yourself a little bit more. Um, but I remember the moment where we were all just around his bed, he was holding my hand and like my family, uh, like my brothers, my mum, his mum and dad, uh, his brother, his sister, we were all there um, because we knew that it was gonna be the day. Um, and obviously it was complete heartbreak. It was something that no, I mean, I was 17 years old. I, I, my birthday was four, four days before, five days before. Um, so, you know, he never got to take me on a driving lesson. He never got to take me to the pub. He never got to see me win an Olympic medal in London. He never got to see me get married and he would have been a granddad now. Like all of these things that, you know, looking back on it, it's like, it's it's tough but at the same time we both had this dream and we both had such a and I think that's part of my motivation every day still is that I'm able to have this like I don't know it's almost like a fire to keep like keep going and to and it's there's so many things that my dad has taught me that at the time I was like, this is the most embarrassing thing in the world. Why are you doing this to me? You're trying to embarrass me. Like, what are you doing that for? And actually now as a parent and also just as an older person to be able to look back and think, he just didn't care what other people thought of him. He just did what was best for his family. He did what was 
like he tried to make everybody smile. He always used to say, do one good turn a day and do what, something nice for someone else every single day. It's just like little things that I look back now and think he was just such a great guy. And do you um, still feel him talking to you then? Can you? I can still imagine what he would say in every scenario. Absolutely. Um, but it is, it's just weird now to think that like every year that goes by, I'm getting, you know, older. It's, I feel sorry also for my brothers because my brothers were really young, like 12 years old and 15 years old. Like my 12-year-old brother, like when I was 12, like I don't know if I would have as many concrete memories um, as I do. Like for yes. example, I'm, I was 17, so I, had, I, have so, I feel lucky that I've got so many memories and so many stories that I can share. But my younger brothers, you know, that memory of him can be, I can imagine, could be quite difficult. Um, it's just... But every day is something that, you know, there's, we've got photos of him in our house and it's, we, we talk about him all the time. And I think that's a really help. Initially, I didn't. I didn't want to talk about it. I just wanted to carry on. I didn't mean to miss any diving sessions. Like in the middle of his, like once his wake had started after his funeral, I had to go away for, I went out to Leeds to compete at the national championships because I was like, no, I want to compete. My dad will want me to compete. I'm not missing anymore. Weren't you distracted though? Because I'd be terrified that I was going to be too distracted while I was trying to do something so precise. I mean, looking back on it now, that was just a 17 year old being like, no, I want to do it. I'm going to do it. Nothing's going to stop me. But looking back on it now, I think like I should have just taken some time away like I didn't allow myself to grieve until after London 2012 because I just it was like nothing it was almost like I didn't there was nothing that was going to stop me from doing the best Mm -hmm. that I could in London 2012 and it was which is probably why post 2012 it everything hit me so hard like I had this whole thing of I'd been working so hard to that moment that I didn't know what was coming afterwards. I was like, who am I? What am I doing? Why am I carrying on? What, like, what purpose do I have now? And I just fell into this really like post-Olympic blues that I, and then it was like the time that I actually started to grieve for my dad. And it was, it was a really difficult time for me like, after that because it's like, how do you talk to someone about the fact that you've won an Olympic bronze medal which is all that you've ever dreamed of is to win an Olympic medal and you're the most sad that you've ever been. Do you think it's because your dad didn't get to witness it? I mean, yes. Did you consider giving up then? Absolutely. Yeah, in the beginning of 2013, I'd stopped. I was like, I'm not doing this anymore. I cannot carry on putting my, like, what have I got to push on for? What, what reason do I have to keep going? Um, and it, in that break that I took, because now looking back on it, it was a break in my head, I'd retired. <laughs> um, but I went to LA uh, to do some uh, filming for Nickelodeon. And when I was there, that was when I met Lance. And that for me was a massive turning point in my life, in my mentality, in everything. It was kind of like, I think this is why Lance and I connected because when I said that it's hard to talk to anyone about doing something that you've always dreamed of and then being in the darkest place ever a month afterwards, Lance, who's now my husband, um, 
was able to talk to me and open up to me about the fact that he'd won an Oscar and then the year after was like what now like I've done it like how do I and then he lost his um, brother um, to cancer he lost his mum to cancer so like these we connected on levels that most people some obviously lots of people have gone through loss and through success and all that kind of stuff but it was like a we connected on that level so well and um yeah did you know with the first time you met him did you think right i want to go out with you all are you very directional like that yes it was uh, within the first week uh we had um we talked about marriage and we'd named robbie (laughs) yeah but you'd always wanted to have children, hadn't you? Yeah, I'd always wanted to have children. I'd bought um, kids' clothes when I, from when I was about 17. Uh, like, really? Basically, as soon as I lost my dad, I was like, I want to be a parent. I want to do what my dad did for me um, for, for kids. Because I think there's... I don't know. There was something... The relationship that I have with my dad was so special... And he taught me so many amazing things that if I was, you know, if I'm able to be half the dad that, you know, my dad was to me, to Robbie, then, you know, I, I would be eternally happy. And who asked who out, was it? Me. And then he came over for my birthday in May 2013. And from then, that was when I came out to my friends, I came out to my mum, I came out to um, everyone that was in my inner circle uh, in May and well I didn't come out publicly until December but it was yeah everything kind of it it was the first time that I felt like I made sense everything kind of you know just fell into place in a way that I had never imagined that it would and I felt happy I felt like I had a new purpose I felt like Lance being as successful as he was he kind of gave me a little bit of you know like I need to get my ass into gear if I want mm. to, you know, you know, impress him. Did you always know you were gay? Yes. I, I knew that I was always different, but I thought the feelings that I was having, everyone was having. I thought that, you know, growing up, I didn't really distinguish between girls and guys. It was kind of just like, I'm, yeah, cool. I didn't really think about it. I just thought everybody, and I thought everyone thought that. And it wasn't until I got to secondary school and people started saying, you know, oh, that's gay, or that's the, and you're like, wait, what? Like, is that is that a bad thing? Oh, was I not meant to think that, or am I not meant to be like that? And you start craft this interesting because like, you start crafting yourself of how you want to be seen, and then all of a sudden you start shutting yourself away. And I think that's part of the reason why I try to overachieve in school. I try to overachieve in my sport, and I try to overachieve in everything that I did to try and hide or like take away from the fact that I knew that I was different. I didn't know in what way I was different. Like, obviously I knew that I had these feelings towards uh, guys as well as the girls. And then it was all of a sudden, once I met Lance, that's when it clicked. And I was like, oh, now, like, I never could have thought that I would fall in love with a man. And then I did. And I was like, now everything makes sense. And was it harder as an athlete really to come out? Cause you came out very publicly, didn't mm. you? And, and that was amazing for a lot of people. In my uh, and sport, particularly children who hadn't had a role model mm-hmm. really like that. I mean, in my, I mean, I was completely terrified about coming out publicly. I think you know everyone, no matter if you if you're coming out or you feel like you have to come out, it's a terrifying moment. Like whether even if you know that your friends and family are going to be accepting, even if, like just the first time you say it out loud can be really quite full on. Um, 
And then the fact to say it out loud in such a public way made me feel... Uh, yeah, I was I was terrified. Um, but doing it and... Uh, in terms of an impact on my sport, it didn't have an impact on my like on my sport. I'm in a sport that's very accepting, but you know, in a sports like football or rugby and things like that, is uh, it's a different story at the moment. But you know, looking back, I would have loved when I was younger, growing up, knowing that I, it's okay to be you, and it's not going to mean that you can't follow your dreams and you can't do everything that everyone else can do just because of who you love. And do you wish your father had met him? He must have. Yes. I mean, I feel like they would have got on so well. Um, and even Lance's brother, Lance's brother, who he lost, um, Lance always tells me how similar that he thinks that my dad and him were in terms of the things that they enjoyed and from Lance watching like the documentaries and videos of like and actually kind of getting to know my dad a little bit. And who proposed to who? I, well, that's again, that's another story. Um, so we, it was a long period of time that we were trying to propose to each other, basically. We started, um, I had this idea of get, getting a ring where I could propose to him in his favourite place in the world, which is Dolores Park in San Francisco. And we were going to California that summer, and I thought, this is going to be the time. So... We'd just gone for an amazing dinner. I was like, let's go for a walk because we were staying at the bottom of the hill in Dolores Park. We walked to the top and I was like, you know, started, you know, talking about how like, oh, isn't it crazy? Like we met like, and I started doing a bit of a spiel. And then he was like, oh, like Dolores Park used to be so beautiful, but it's under construction. Now it just looks ugly. And I was like, oh, right. Okay. So not right now. Uh, So I kind of swerved that. And then the next day we went for like a walk to like, I think it's called Land's End in San Francisco. And you can like see the Golden Gate Bridge and all that kind of stuff. And we got to this point and again, I was like about to do it. And then all of a sudden, like a group of school kids come by and I was like, oh gosh, okay, maybe not now. So then I like, and then I tried also when we, because we left the next day to go back to LA and then I tried doing it in LA. But again, you know, when it just never felt like it was the right moment. So then we came home to the UK, a couple of weeks went by, then we went for a picnic in St. James's Park and I was completely oblivious and we were sat in the park having lunch and Lance started doing his like a spiel and then all of a sudden I was like, oh my gosh, that, that kid's got a Nerf gun, I used to have one of those. <laughs> completely interrupted the moment, which I didn't realise was the moment. So then nothing happened there and then we went to dinner again and then we went to Tower Bridge because we thought, oh, we'll do it in Tower, like I think Lance was like, I'll do it in Tower Bridge. Bearing in mind, I'm very observant. I saw that he had a ring box in his pocket this whole time. But, so we so got to Tower Bridge, and of course it was the blood moon. So then all of a sudden there were tons of photographers there taking photos of the moon between, like, in the middle of Tower Bridge. So we thought, okay, he thought, okay, that's probably not the place. So ended up coming home in the spare bedroom. Lance came out of the bathroom, and I got down on one knee and just did it. And I knocked over the microphone. Um... So we got home and in the spare bedroom, I literally just got down on one knee and proposed. And when I was on my knee, he was like, wait there. And I was like, yes or no? Wait, like, what do you mean wait there? And he went into the bathroom, got his ring that he was going to give to me. So it was, it was like, kind of like we proposed to each other, but obviously in my competitive way, I proposed first. (laughs) (laughs) Like history knows that I've proposed first.
you know immediately that you were going to have children? Well, you did because you knew what the name of the child was already. Uh, we both have like always wanted kids, and I think um, now being a parent is just is changed my perspective on absolutely everything. Changed my way. I think it's opened like a whole new emotional layer to me. I don't know. It's just been the most amazing last couple of years with Robbie. And how did you find the surrogate mother? Yeah, our, our surrogate is an. She is. Well, I mean, we talk to her all the time. Still, we're in constant communication with her. She's. It's. And an has she seen Robbie? Does she? Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. Of course, of course. Like we, like FaceTime, and we whenever we're in in the states, we always hang out. It's it's like becoming a, like a a family. Like she becomes. It's it's really hard to explain, um, but the way that we interact with her and the way that we are with her it's like she's become one of our best friends and there's something really special about that connection and it's something that um lance and i are very um we want to be completely open and honest and transparent and obviously when robbie starts asking questions of like how did i come into the world you know um we want to just we want robbie to know her we want robbie to understand everything and be you know completely honest and do you know which the father is or did you decide not to know so we we decided not to know um but it's also one of those things that we're both the parents did you have when you were going to antenatal classes and things did you have any homophobia did people react differently do you think as two fathers to be honest Initially, like I think people, before they saw us as a family, they might have thought certain things, but when they actually see how much we like love and care for Robbie, um, it's, I think it, it changes people's mind because they think, oh, they just want to be a family. And that, of course, that's all that we've ever wanted to be. of life where you feel there is still prejudice so for example when you're competing in the commonwealth games that must be really tough because there are some commonwealth countries where you're actually not allowed to be gay yeah Um, so there are things that still um that are still really hard yeah i mean there's of course i think uh, again it's a fact you can go to places in the uk where you can experience homophobia i think people you know living in london people may not actually ever experience it or think about it but there's lots of places within the UK that people are, you know, um, attacked and people are... And especially, like, even in America, uh, where you think, again, that's going to be a place where there's no homophobia. Of course, there's tons of it there. And it's about... Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult one um, because, obviously, there are lots of countries where it is still illegal. Um, I mean, I haven't... There are countries that I go to compete where it is very much frowned upon, illegal... Um, but I think the most powerful thing that an out athlete can do is to go there, compete, and do the best that you can. Mm. And do you go with Lance, and then do you make sure that you make it clear that you are a couple? Well, under the, the British policies, we're not allowed to travel together, stay together. Um, so it's like, as part of competitions and things like that, we have to stay separate uh, completely anyway. So he does come to some competitions to watch, but he'll stay elsewhere with Robbie. Okay. And do you think we've become too obsessed by gender and by sexuality and actually that everyone can be more fluid? Because yeah. you are a younger generation than many of the sports people now and that in a way, is, you know, you're our ambassador for UK sport and the National Lottery. You can be a role model, can't you? So 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah, it's it. I think it's that's a, it's a really challenging one with, um, with with all of that because gender is such a you know hard rooted thing in the the way of life and culture and you know for thousands of years there's certain things that we're told that men should only do and that women should only do and actually you know why it's just mm. it's like a construct made by human beings that they think that that was the right thing to do when actually you know why why can't you know women do exactly the same or more than a man can do like there's this it's and this especially with for example how someone might dress and how someone like their sexual orientation whatever it is like if i don't what i don't understand is when people are so against something that isn't hurting them and it isn't affecting their life so but have such strong opinions about making sure that they suffer i think that's the thing that i that i struggle to to get my head around when you think about the olympics next year do you feel daunted by it or do you feel a lot of pressure or do you now desperately want to win a gold or have you sort of almost mellowed yeah i think uh, i've almost see this next year as a bonus year it's like you know what i thought i was going to be competing this year i'm not i'm waiting another year so next year i'm going to do uh, my absolute best like i said at the beginning to be on that platform the best physically prepared mentally prepared with no regrets doing everything that i possibly could have to be in the best shape to do the best that I can. Is it very different being a father? Does that reduce the pressure then now? I think that does dramatically reduce the pressure because I know that if I do well or if I do badly, my son is going to be there and is going to give me a hug. Thinking back to yourself at 17 when your father died, is there any advice you'd give yourself now? I would say to take some time that you have to remember the importance of being there for every it's not just about you getting back to diving and focusing there's just to be there for everyone it's you know I was there for everyone to, to a certain extent but you know with my brothers they just never wanted to talk about it and because they didn't want to talk about it I never talked about it with them and now I wish that I spend more time talking to my brothers because now I think looking back on it and how, you know, how things shape people, I think it could have been really beneficial to be able to just talk about it more openly. And you've got a tattoo, haven't you, of the Olympic? Yes, I've got it on my, like, on my inner arm, on my bicep area. Would you get one of a gold medal if you... Oh, gosh, I don't know about that. I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a tattoo person, to be honest. It's just like a tradition that lots of Olympians... Well, most Olympians get a tattoo or a ring or something like that. I do have a ring as well, but um, uh, that's at home at the moment because it's been cleaned. <laughs> um, but I, I do like that was what I got um, after 2008 because my parents were like, of course, you want to have a tattoo, but you're 14 years old and we're not going to allow you to get a tattoo because if you're, you know, on TV and then, you know, people see a tattoo and they're like, wait, what? He's 14 years old. Why has he got a tattoo? But for my 18th birthday, my mum wrote in a card, I owe you an Olympic tattoo. Oh, so she got it for me for my 18th birthday. Thank you, Tom Daly. That was great. Thank you for having me. ...with his father. So you often hear these terrible stories about child prodigies and their 
parent coaches and how they're pushed and driven and actually they're rather miserable whereas his father was obviously his cheerleader and was just incredibly kind and lovely and that's why he wanted to have his own child to replicate that sort of extraordinary relationship and now he's a sort of role model for him as a father and it's fascinating too that being a father has almost taken the pressure off his diving because it's given him this sense of perspective so he he feels almost less pressure than he did before. I now actually really want to see the Olympic Games next year and watch him dive, now that we know exactly how he feels that moment before he flings himself off that board. And, that and it's actually terrifying. And the fact that he's had so many injuries and that you're hitting the ground, was it at 38 miles an hour? That is fairly extraordinary. Mm. Well, not the ground, the water, OK, hopefully. yes, we might miss that last <laughs> bit out. <laughs> Imperfect was presented by me, Rachel Sylvester. And me, Alice Thompson. It was produced by Lucy Ditchmont. The executive producer was Matt Hall. It was a Wireless Studios production. You can hear Past Imperfect on Times Radio and download the podcast from Apple Podcasts, ACAS, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>